Major League Baseball is out of patience with its primary local broadcast partner. Plus, later in the episode, athletic writer Ben Pickman joins to take a look at the WNBA as its finals play out. It's Friday, October 13th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. MLB is getting fed up with Diamond Sports Group. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. So we already knew that Diamond was not doing super well. They're still, you know, in bankruptcy proceedings. Yep. Uh, what's the latest um, in terms of MLB and its relationship there? So not good to put it bluntly, <laughs> but there there are two new filings here, and basically uh, the first one sort of relates to a prior request that Diamond had to have more time to do its reorganization plan. It's sort of like the legal equivalent of going to your teacher, "Hey, can I have more time to finish my term paper?" kind of thing, uh-huh. and that's what they've asked for an additional two months to kind of put together this. Uh, additional uh, to put this reorganization plan together. The league has said no. You've already been in bankruptcy all season long. Uh, there's no pathway here. This is going to end up in a liquidation anyway. Let's just call a spade a spade. You do not need more time because it's not going to change the outcome, which relates to the second filing that they had that they basically want an answer now on which teams they intend to uh, that Diamond intends to keep the rights to for next year. Um there's 12 teams in question here, and the, and the number of teams that they keep could be anywhere between 0 and 12, depending on how the outcome of all of this other reorganization effort happens. What the league is saying is, just tell us now, because we had this fire drill to stand up and, and distribute the, uh, the Padres games and then the Diamondbacks games, and instead of this uh, – sort of frenetic ad hoc situation. Let's just get a clear read now, and then we can use the entire offseason to make plans accordingly. The league is prepared to stand up and produce and distribute these games if they have to, uh, but it's much better from a production standpoint and certainly much better from a financial standpoint if they have maximum amount of lead time, and that's what they're looking for. Yeah, I remember at the very start of last season, there was the same ambiguity of, is Diamond going to be a functional company? Like, are they, you know, what's going to happen here? And MLB people seemed weirdly calm about the whole situation of, you know, we'll figure it out, we'll do it. And they did, you know, when the the Padres um, went, went, got disconnected from Diamond, MLB stepped in, it seemed without any kind of disaster, same with the Diamondbacks. But yeah, obviously not something you would want to more teams all at once, right. whereas the Padres thing had been sort of coming, and then there was a the bit of a pause for a couple of months there, and then the Diamondbacks, you're talking about more teams and sort of potentially a more concentrated period of time. So we're at a completely different scale contemplation here. And any sense of how this is going to play out on either end? probably still looking at a liquidation. That's what everybody involved seems to think, and uh, except for Diamond, but there are a lot of big carriage contracts to work out. Uh, there are internal issues between Diamond and its parent company, Sinclair. Uh, they're sort of fighting it, uh, Diamond uh, sort of war on about three or four different fronts, and it's really hard right now to sort of see a clear outcome where they're going to succeed on all of them. And, and, and that's before we even talk about the macro level issues in, involving all of the regional sports network landscape. And so, um, yeah, 
right now the the sort of the, the betting odds would sort of have to favor ultimately a chapter seven proceeding. Right. I mean, yeah, that, that's an excellent point that, yes, the company is going through some trouble right now. They've got a lot of open questions. And yet, but there's the reason that all this is happening in the first place, which is this ongoing push that is is making regional broadcasting, especially on cable, a, a serious challenge. Um Briefly, I want to hit on the ongoing MLB playoffs with you. So uh, it's the the regular season gets you there, but it, it doesn't mean a whole lot once you're in the playoffs. Yeah, all of your 100-win teams are out now. The Orioles are gone. Uh, the Dodgers are now the latest to be gone. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this in prior episodes that, you know, already we had sort of an inversion of some upstart teams and some lower payroll teams getting into the mix this year. And this is just another... Uh, data point that uh, you know the league for a long, long time has set up its postseason as as a tournament in some fashion. I mean, really going back fifty plus years since they started divisional play, and certainly you know more in the last generation as we've increased the introduced the wild card and then increased the wild card. The postseason structured as a tournament, and if you sort of think about it like March Madness you can kind of have March Madness type results. And that's kind of what's happening right now. Yeah. And, you know, that's on purpose. I feel like they're, um, they've had previous marketing campaigns around anything can happen. And that's sort of what you want is to be excitement and chaos. Maybe not this level of chaos, but you know, that this is, this is one of the outcomes that can happen. And if you're in the playoffs, you should be able to win a series and any team can win a best of five series. Like you, if you just threw in the Kansas city Royals for some reason, they would have a shot at beating, you know, the Astros, the Dodgers because any team in that shortest series What's can shocking win. here though is that the Dodgers, Orioles, and Rays all failed to even win a single game. Yeah. Not much right. less a series, even a single game. Yeah, that is jarring how yeah, it'd be one thing if yeah, it was just, you know, it came down to that last play and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, they're they're getting dominated, um, which is yeah, it's interesting um and notable. One more thing before we go. Uh, so there was this funny incident um, with the kind of the last dominant regular season team hanging on um, at the moment, which is the Braves. Um, there, he, the shortstop right, Orlando Garcia, um, had this locker room moment where uh, after the Braves won their only game that they've won in that series against the Phillies, where he said, attaboy, Harper. Uh, referring to Philly star Bryce Harper, and it got out of the locker room. It became a thing. Harper hit two home runs and stared down Arcia as he was uh, rounding the bases both times. And Arcia has responded by saying, well, guys, like I didn't mean that to get out of the locker room. And maybe he didn't, but he said it in front of who knows how many reporters. Yeah, so... Bryce Harper is a very intense player. That sort of comes with the territory. But I don't really have a lot of sympathy here for Arcia. Uh, these ball players, and much like in other sports, go through pretty extensive media training and sort of know the rules of the road at the beginning of every year, what's going to happen when the clubhouses and the locker rooms open and writers are allowed in. And I've been in plenty of clubhouses and there are these designated times when we're allowed in and when we're not allowed in. And the message is clear that during those open periods, these players are instructed to sort of comport themselves, uh, you know, with due caution. And if they need to take something private, there are any number of ancillary areas, you know, private back rooms, training areas that we're not allowed in. And so there are off limit areas. And so 
the message for RC or any other player is pretty clear that, you know, unless you want to sort of broadcast out to the world, you know, take it into one of those private areas or just don't say it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I get that, you know, he probably didn't realize who was listening or maybe he didn't realize the reaction it would get, or he's used to his local reporters who, you know, maybe wouldn't have run with anything like that. Anyway. Yeah. Learning lesson for him. And, um, and, and yeah, if, if you don't, if, if you want something to be off the record, don't say it in front of, you know, a, a giant room full of reporters. Um, Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Around seven or eight investors are bidding for a piece of the PGA Tour. But as we've covered here, it's a little ambiguous what that means, because the Tour is working to complete a deal with Saudi Arabia's public investment fund to create a new entity that would oversee much of the top level of professional golf. But that deal is not done. There's a good chance that the two sides miss a December 31st deadline, and that'll lead to a bit of confusion as to what role these other investors might have. All of that was put on stage, literally, when Endeavor CEO Ari Emanuel confirmed at a Bloomberg conference that his company was among the bidders. Would that, do you have a sense of whether that would be in addition to the Saudi money coming in or instead of? Uh, we put in our bid. Yeah. For what? For the PGA deal. Okay. For, 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 for a piece of the tour or for the for, whole thing? For, for the PGA. For, yeah. A piece or whole? I'm trying- you, know, you, can't, you can't buy the majority. <laughs> okay, thank you. Maybe Emmanuel is just being coy, but it seems at least as likely that he himself doesn't know if Endeavor and other investors like Arcto Sports Partners are an addition to the Saudi deal or a backup plan if it falls through. Over to the media world. Skip Bayless seems to have made a mistake, at least if he cares about his ratings. The undisputed host jettisoned his debate partner Shannon Sharp earlier this year, and now Sharp has been scooped up by Bayless's chief rival, Stephen A. Smith. Stephen A. was already winning the ratings war with Bayless, but Sharp has widened the gap. My colleague Mike McCarthy explained in a column on frontofficesports.com that in the six weeks that Sharp has been making guest appearances on First Take, he already has three of the top four most watched shows this year, including 825,000 viewers on Monday. That's second only to the first take following DeMar Hamlin's frightening health incident at the start of the year, and roughly quintuple the 172,000 that Bayless drew on Monday. Sharp is not just seen as a savvy get for Smith. He could be Smith's heir apparent if Stephen A. decides he's ready to move on from dominating the sports morning talk show world. Sticking with media, if you read our newsletter, you may have noticed a new section we've been trying out called Tuned In, where we take a look at some interesting data in sports media, and we have some of that from the debut of NHL phenom Connor Bedard. The game, which began with a face-off between Bedard and Sidney Crosby, perhaps the last prospect to come in with this much hype, averaged 1.43 million viewers on ESPN, which is the highest average for a regular season game other than the Winter Classic in NHL history. Bedard had an assist in that game off a nifty backhand pass and a goal in his following game against the Bruins. Bedard's journey is just beginning, but he's already showing that he's worth tuning in for. Up next, the WNBA Finals are happening amid a surge in interest in the league, which will soon be adding at least one more team. I spoke to Ben Pickman, staff writer at The Athletic, on the finals, the league's growth, ongoing issues raised by the players, and a pivotal moment on the horizon that could define the league's future for years to come. That conversation is coming up next. All right. Very excited to be joined now by Ben Pickman, staff writer at The Athletic. Welcome, Ben. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, great to have you. So you cover the WNBA and college basketball. Uh, We're coming off two games in Las Vegas for the WNBA finals. What's the vibe been like in in Vegas? 
I mean, the Vegas crowds are some of, if not the best in the entire league. It has a you know, decisively Vegas feel to it. You know, there's a lot of pyrotechnics used in the arena during the national anthem. You see fireworks and sparklers going off. And you sometimes think like, is this really safe to be doing in a basketball arena with 10,000 people? But the crowds are super good. Um, despite two blowout games that the Aces won, they were obviously into it rooting for the home team. So, um, you know, maybe some fans wish for closer games, but um, the environments were, were really, really a positive. Yeah, yeah, very cool. And yeah, it's one of those things where it's, you su- assume that they've figured out that the fireworks are going to be fine, but um, yeah, hopefully it all works out. Uh, do these finals feel like a step up for the WNBA? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, certainly this was the finals that a lot of people um, were hoping to see, right? You have two teams loaded with star power. You go up and down these rosters, you know, a lot of players on Team USA, numerous players who have made all W teams. I mean, it's probably you know, eight to 10 of the best 20 players in the whole league are are in this series. And so the concentration of talent is really, really high. And I think you've started to see the reflected interest all year, right? The New York Liberty have played a ton of games on ABC on the weekends. The Aces, another super prominent team uh, on national television. And we've seen ratings go up across the league for that reason. The the finals ratings, again, for game one, um, we haven't seen the numbers for game two, but game one uh, was up. I believe it was like the first, the, the highest rated game one ever on ESPN. And it's going up against uh, the NFL on a Sunday afternoon. So they were pretty happy. It seemed like from a league perspective with the rating, albeit still going against football. So the interest is there. It continues to grow. And you kind of have these two high profile teams, which um, continue to help elevate uh, both themselves, their franchises, and I think um, the rest of the league as well. Yeah, and the growth of women's sports, you know, WNBA, very much a part of that picture has been one of the big stories that we've been covering, I mean, over the last couple of years. Could you give us, it's like a level set around like where we're at in that growth trajectory? Yeah, I mean, I think the WNBA is very much continuing to grow and is looking to boom, um, especially over the next few years, right? One of the big topics around the sport is expansion. And just last week, um, Kathy Engelbert, the league's commissioner, announced what will be the 13th team in the league, the first expansion team in more than a decade going into the Bay Area um, under the ownership group of the Golden State Warriors, Joe Lacob and Peter Goober. And that's a group that you know has kind of made promises to pour a ton of resources in and invest in that franchise, much like they have in the Golden State Warriors, there's then going to be a 14th franchise. My colleagues at The Athletic have reported that Portland is a strong contender to be that 14th team. And so, you know, you have expansion on the horizon, which I think speaks to the the health of the league, especially uh, in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. I think that was one of the reasons why Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner, said it had been delayed a little bit, um, that they first needed to kind of Uh, come back to some kind of normalcy post-pandemic or post the beginning of the pandemic, the heart of the pandemic. And then you certainly see, you know, other changes and other growths coming. And and one of the big ones, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about it, is media rights. Um, And their negotiations are coming up uh, very soon. Its current deal with ESPN ends after the 2025 season. And so there's this big opportunity to maybe have new partners, maybe explore new avenues. And more than anything else, you know, pump some more revenue into the league and hopefully uh, see some other changes trickle down as a result. Yeah, let's hit on those media rights in a moment. On the expansion topic, let's assume Portland is the 14th team. Should we, um, does any thoughts on the locations of those teams, you know, both West Coast uh, moving in, yeah, into the Bay and Portland? 
Well, there are two kind of very interesting markets that I think have a rich basketball history, women's basketball history, um, and have, I think, proven fan bases. You know, Kathy Engelbert, again, the commissioner, has talked a lot about all the data and analysis that they have poured over um, in making this decision. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting from a business standpoint about these potential expansion teams, and let's take it that Portland will get that 14 team just hypothetically, is that you have one team in the Golden State Warrior Bay Area group that is backed by an NBA franchise or NBA ownership, and you have another organization potentially in Portland, which is not. Um, it will be a local billionaire. Um, I believe Kirk Brown is is the billionaire um, who is fronting that team or is the majority owner would be um, of that group. And so you know, not every WNBA team has NBA owners backing them. Um, but it will provide just kind of an interesting comparison right off the bat about investment. Um, and we see right now, you know, Mark Davis, the owner of the Las Vegas Raiders, also the owner of the Las Vegas Aces, um, who, again, 2-0 in the finals as we record this, has poured a lot of money and financial investment in that franchise. They recently opened a state-of-the-art practice facility that is exclusively theirs and is, is really beautiful. I saw it for the first time uh, when I was at, in Las Vegas for the finals. Joe Sai and Clara Wusai, um, also owner of the Brooklyn Nets, they are the owners of the New York Liberty, and they've pumped a ton of money um, into the Liberty. You know, both they have a state-of-the-art, uh, they, they use great facilities in Barclays Center, and they have access to Sunset Park where the Nets practice in Brooklyn. They've really invested in the performance team, for instance. Like, they have a... Um, very big, sizable medical staff that really is year-round and treats their players on whatever needs. So you have two owners and people at the series talked about it this year who have poured a lot in. And so we'll, you know, they've kind of set the standard. Um, and I think it will be on these new ownership groups to to follow suit. Yeah. And Lakeup is certainly um, not shy about pouring money into the Warriors. I think we can ex- expect the same for the Bay Area team. And, you know, expansion is never easy exactly, but it seems easier for the WNBA just because there are so many uh, NBA teams and NBA arenas that are ready to go. And so many of them are in desirable markets. And yeah, and you've got so many NBA team owners that are happy to add a WNBA team when the opportunity arises. Yeah, I mean, the thing that needs to be sorted out is just what does expansion actually look like from a roster standpoint, from a competitive standpoint? Um, those are some questions as you talk to people uh, in recent days and recent weeks. Nobody's really sure like what exactly the expansion draft is going to look like. And so the competitive implications of it, I think, are a big question as uh, as this finals comes to a close. Let's hop over to the media rights end of things. So as you said, the deal with ESPN ends in 2025. Also, both the uh, Players Association and the league have the option to opt out of the current CBA in 2025. So yeah, talk to me a bit about that moment and kind of everything that's pouring into that, that coming date. I mean, it's a really critical, critical time. And I think a lot of stakeholders at the WNBA have really put a lot of stock in getting a far richer and more lucrative media rights deal. Um, and the implications are really significant, right? I talked to Kathy Engelbert again um, back in August on the topic of charter flights. I talked to you know players around the league, some executives as well, about small things that could be done maybe in the short term as related to travel, and then also about charter flights um, more generally for those don't, that don't know WNBA players fly commercial during the regular season, though in the playoffs this year, they have flown charter um, when needed. So, you know, one people, what Kathy said and other executives as well, is that, you know, you have these media rights deals and you have a more lucrative media rights deal, and then everything else kind of follows, that 
you know, if you get the money that you need for TV broadcast, then you have more money to allocate into travel. And so, you know, travel is going to be one of the most prominent issues that the PA will push for uh, in the upcoming CBA negotiation. But maybe what they push for and what the WNBA is, you know, able to agree to um, is determined by uh, the media rights deal and how much money is at play. So you kind of have these two big negotiations going on at one time, and it will just be really interesting to see um, how it all plays out. Yeah. Whenever I talk to WNBA players, I'm sure not as much as you do, but uh, there's always this dual thing where they're super excited about the growth of the league and the trajectory it's on. Uh, but there's also this level of discontent. You know, travel comes up a lot. Roster size is a, another issue that, that I've I've heard mentioned a number of times. How palpable is how big an issue are these? Are, could this be a real sticking point in the next CBA? I mean, I think there's certainly priorities and things that will very much take up a lot of time in conversation. Um, you know, at The Athletic, we recently did an anonymous player poll where we talked to almost 50 players. And one of the questions that we asked them uh, was, would you rather have expansion right now or increased roster sizes? WNBA teams have uh, 12 teams, uh, 12 spots per roster, but often because of cap regulations and restrictions, many teams roster it. 11 players and sometimes even 10 players at a time. So it's not even a full 144 uh, in the league at one time. And so a lot of players talk about like, let's just first uh, expand the roster sizes and add more players. Let's treat the players we have and the franchises we have better and improve you know, people in the house before we build another house. Um, and that was kind of a common sentiment we got. And the majority of players we talked to actually wanted uh, more roster sizes before expansion. Now, it looks like expansion uh, is certainly on the horizon. And these two things are not mutually exclusive. But I think there is a sentiment still of, you know, expansion is great and it's positive to move into new markets. And that's exciting. And, you know, there'll be new fan bases that are tapped into or grown, but also still a... a a feeling of let's treat uh, our players that we have better. Let's improve the quality of the teams we have, the investment of the teams we have uh, currently existing. So, you know, all of this is kind of at play and players are certainly outspoken about voicing their opinion on the topic. Yeah, it's curious to me that they're not even filling out all the the roster spots that they have already, at least in some cases. Um, Is that a pipeline issue or a teams don't want to pay for that many players issue or what's going on there. It's just a salary cap restriction issue. It is just the WNBA has a hard cap. um, And so teams butt up against it and don't, are not afforded the same flexibility that um, you sometimes see in other major American sports leagues. Um, And so it can be pretty limiting. It's why, you know, the WNBA trade deadline passes almost every year without any transactions or any significant transactions. It's why, um, you know, free agency can often be a little bit limiting, though it wasn't last offseason. It's why some offseason trades can be um, a little bit sparse. So um, that is something else that I think we'll see if it changes as more money gets pumped in the league as a salary cap grows. Maybe some of those rule changes are, are adjusted and, and more player movement is then kind of fostered. Yeah, I mean, it feels like this just goes right back to the next set of media deals because that's the probably the next big opportunity to get more money going into the league every year. And that could lead to, you know, better conditions for the current players and more, more spots for players. And, uh, but the, the money, I guess, has to come there first. Uh, is that a, do, do the players, are, are they on board with that narrative or are they, are they saying let's make things better for us right now? There's, we, we have the money, we have the ability to do this. Yeah. I mean, I think, 
I think it is kind of both. I think certainly uh, there is a recognition or a desire from people at the Players Association to say, we can make things better right now. You know, I talked to the, the WNBPA executive director, Terry Jackson, again in August for this charter flight story. And she talked about how, you know, the PA and the league, they broker side deals all the time. And so we don't need to wait for a full new CBA to make some of these changes. And she talked about how, you know, on the topic of charter flights, that they're not even pushing for charter flights for every flight. They just want more optionality. They want teams to be allowed to choose, say, um, do we want to have five charter flights or seven charter flights? Or when do we want to use charter flights? Like they're not saying we need it for every single game just yet. Um, so I think there is a lot of kind of, I mean, and this is all a bargaining tactic, right? Like there's a CBA coming up and this will be a, a significant negotiation with a lot of impact on the future of the league. And so, you know, people at the PA are trying to put some public pressure to say, we can make changes now. And people at the league, I think are waiting to say, you know, we might have this agreement that is coming up soon and we'll negotiate it and talk about it then because, you know, it's just a leverage and a bargaining piece for each side. All right. Before we let you go from one New Yorker to another, do the Liberty have a chance here? Um, not certainly if they play like they did, uh, in their first two games in Las Vegas, uh, that is not exactly a hot take, but, uh, the New York Liberty have really struggled to slow down anything that the Las Vegas aces have done. The series flips back to Barclays center, you know, the crowds in Barclays have been great all year. Um, I expect great crowds on Sunday. We'll see if New York can then match the energy of its crowd on court and force a game four. And then, you know, we'll see what happens from there. All right, Ben Pickman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. That is it for today. Subscribe, and if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the fall weather. We will see you on Monday.